So after the last three Sundays were all about Easter, uh, today we're going back to Romans and we're currently in Romans 11. So for those who are new in the church, um, we go to we go through the Bible verse by verse and currently we're in Romans. And the goal is kind of to completely uh, go through the Bible and just, you know, face all the Bibles, not just those that we specifically like, but just read the entire Word of God. And uh, after after we've really taken it through, I'll look at the Gospel in chapters 1 through 8 and um, realize that we've been saved through grace. Paul uh, is now looking at Israel in chapters 9 to 11 and is posing the question, What's going on with Israel? God's chosen people. They have rejected Jesus and they have rejected the gospel. So is God done with them now? Are all the promises he made to them not true any longer? Is he disloyal towards them, towards his chosen people? So chapter 9 to 11. Um, yeah, chapters 9 to 11 are just about these questions. And these are important questions, not just for the Israelites, but also for us. And then Paul is also talking in chapter 12 uh, about the about the effects that the gospel can have on our life. And that's sort of more practical, and I'm really looking forward to that, to these pra practical tips. And if there is uh, one thing that we can clearly see in these th three chapters, 9 to 11, it's the sovereignty of God, especially in chapter 9 we saw that, but today we're also going to see that. So we see and realize what's happening in front of us, what's happening in the present, but we can also gather connections and uh, ideas about what happened in the past, and we also get a good idea about the future, because the Bible is talking about all those things. But all of these things, all of that stuff that we can gather from the Bible is not enough to truly recognize and realize God's just and merciful acts from his eternal perspective in all its different aspects. And uh, the last verse is from chapter 11, 33 to 36. So we're almost looking at the entire chapter 11, we'll be just taking out this last chunk, we're just going to take that out and have that separately, because um, those three, four verses, they talk about God's unimaginably great being, and they don't need any interpretation or further explanation, and it says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his path, beyond tracing out, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has ever been his counsel, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And that is um, the title of the sermon. God is following his goal and his plan. So God has a plan where everything has its purpose for every individual life, but also in a bigger sense for entire people like with Israel. And God is just and loyal towards his people. Even if it looked like back then or looks like right now as if he has forgotten all of his promises. 
and if, if salvation was only there for the heathens and Gentiles. But, however, we'll see today that God ha has not forgotten his people and he hasn't rejected them. Even though the people in their entirety gave him all the reason for that with their rebellion and disloyalty. But never, never God would be disloyal towards himself. He would never break his own word. He will stand to that and his sovereign plan will come to fruition. And so we're at the beginning of chapter 11 now. And we're going to read the chapters 1 to 5. And it says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God has not rejected his people. Even though Israel as a whole has rejected the gospel because there's still a significant part that accepts the gospel and Paul himself is the best example for that, right? It seems as if Paul wants to say here, hi, hello, hi to everyone who thinks that God has rejected them. I'm one of you and God has reached out to me and I have gained this promised salvation and I found it and if God can save me one of those that was prosecuting Christian then he can save you too and in 1st Timothy 1 verse 16 Paul says that God saved him, but for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul's dramatic salvation, where Jesus appeared to him personally, whilst he was uh, on the road to, in order to uh, capture and kill Christians. That, that dramatic salvation is a good symbol for how Israel is going to be saved in the future. When at the end of time, God will reach out again to his people in a special manner. And Paul is a good example for that. And, um, and then Paul 
with the story about the history of Israel during the times of the prophet Elijah, is bringing another proof that God has not rejected his people even though as a whole they removed himself themselves from him and Elijah was at a point in his life where he feared that he was the only one left that was God fearing and trusting in God but God showed him that there are also 7000 other people next to him that also remained faithful towards God and didn't bow down before Baal they remained steadfast and turned towards God the living father and spirit and the entire history of Israel there always remained a good part that still believed in God and served him and remained faithful even if everyone else turned away there was always a part that remained faithful and with those God went his way and fulfilled his promises and Paul is saying that even now we have that rest that is remaining even though there weren't many Jews uh, during the time of Paul that accepted Jesus as the Messiah God used that small group to do great things so at its core there were only 12 disciples 12 followers that uh, used the gospel or that God used to spread the gospel around the entire world and sometimes um, even we think like especially during taxing times we're not in a good mood that we are alone and um, that we can't do anything we want to stick to God and we want to build up his kingdom but we realize that there's kind of this opposition against it. our family, our city, our country, and they don't, they reject Jesus entirely, and we feel alone. Like, especially missionaries also feel like that oftentimes when there are places where there's just few Christians. And there are just times like that in our lives that are incredibly suffocating, and sometimes we just feel the need to to run away, to run away like a liar and uh, escape into the desert and just be alone and away from a world that is unfaithful. Do you know Do you know that feeling? But it's important to realize that we are not alone. You are not alone. There are others that have the same heart as you and God doesn't need many to do great things. We always think it needs to be like an entire army of people just, some, just so something can happen, but that doesn't need to be like that. God mostly used just a small group of people to do great things, to fulfill his plan. So let us belong to that small group, to that group of people that God goes his sovereign way with in this unfaithful world. And let us belong to those that stick close to God no matter what happens, that they and that don't, don't run away and uh, that can experience God's loyalty in person and see how his promises come to fruition <coughs> the Jews as we can read in chapter 5 the Jews that recognized the gospel 
that recognize she's they don't belong to God because of any deeds of their own, but because God chose them because of God's grace. And in verse 6 it says, And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So, basically, grace and deeds or acts don't work together. They don't fit together. And we saw that in chapter 8 where it says that we're saved by grace alone. So it is impossible to mix grace and deeds. Sometimes, because sometimes we think that we're saved through grace, but we still need to do stuff for God. But that's not true. We're saved through grace and we live through grace. And if it's through deeds, then it cannot be through grace. God chooses and leads us through great grace and that is one of israel's uh main problem because they always wanted to please god through their deeds because we can read they have this zeal for god they want to stick to the law and they really wanted to please god by just following the law letter by letter so they wanted to live by that but not by true revelation not by really recognizing god's heart and truly understanding him And so most of them weren't ready to let themselves be gifted the grace Jesus earned for them through the cross. They wanted to earn their salvation through their own deeds. They wanted to be saved by themselves because of their pride. And uh, they didn't realize that Jesus himself, that Jesus alone is salvation and that we can only get salvation through him. That's just a small rest that recognized that that was chosen by God and now we read verses 7 to 10 what then what the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain the elect among them did but the others were hardened as it is written God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day And then David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. And <clears throat> through this constant rebellion against God and against God's will, the heart of the Israelites became hardened. And at one point, just they didn't care about the truth anymore and about God really said they had their plan and their way. And their hearts became more and more hardened against God. And so God blinded them and to put it in a more visual picture um, he put a veil upon them so that now they truly weren't able to see the truth anymore against which they were rebelling the entire time and uh, in the verses from uh, Isaiah that are cited here uh, the reason why God did that is explained more closely so we can read in Isaiah 29 verse 13 
the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. So the Jews were trapped in their religious seal. And uh, the only thing, the only things of importance for them were just deeds and superficial stuff. They did lots of stuff for God, but their heart was far from God. Their worship and their prayers were just empty words. And in Amos 5, And so in Amos 5, verse 21 to 23, or before that, it says, If you seek me, you will find me. That is the verse that we cited during worship earlier. And then a bit later, now in Amos 5, verse 21 to 23, God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. That is pretty a pretty harsh judgment. Away with the noise of your songs, it says. And um, this religious behavior, this religious seal, gave them a sense of security. But in reality, it became their downfall. And today, as back then, what's important for God is our heart. It's not about superficial stuff, but about having a good relationship with the Lord. God finds no pleasure in just superficial religious acts that we just do because we think it's a duty that we do them. That is just superficial service. And that is something that even today just gives people a false sense of security that they think they just need to do certain stuff in order to be safe. But in reality, their hearts are away from God. But God just, just wants our hearts. He doesn't want our deeds, but our hearts. He wants a heart that is dedicated to him where he can reign. In this alone, God finds pleasure. And that is something we're also going to address next week in chapter 12, what that can mean in a more practical sense. So let us just read the next couple of verses, verses 11 to 14. Again, I ask that they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery not at all rather what right not at all rather because of their transgression salvation has come to the gentiles to make israel envious but if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the gentiles how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. And here in these verses, 
God's sovereign plan is revealed. He's not, his plan is not failing because his people rejected him, but he reveals this bigger, overarching, ineffable plan. Israel is not fallen forever in the sense that there is no recovery for them anymore and that they are removed from God's promises and his plan. They stumbled, it says here. They made a misstep, it has says here, but they're not removed, they're not fallen forever. And we know that, right? Like when we're on foot, sometimes we misstep and we just stumble, but we catch ourselves again. And then we just keep on walking, then we stand and we just go on. And that is kind of the picture that Paul wants to paint here for us. Israel has made a misstep. It has rejected the Messiah. It has stumbled and walking around blindly. But Israel will catch themselves again. The stumbling of Israel was used by God to reach out to the Gentiles and to bring them the message of the gospel. So he basically sort of like benched Israel for a while to turn towards the Gentiles at that time and to reach out also to the Gentiles to also spread the gospel to us, the Gentiles. And if we read that uh, in the Acts in the Bible, a lot of times the gospel came to the Gentiles first after the Jews had rejected it. So in a certain sense, the rejection of the gospel through the Jews became the salvation of the Gentiles. And this salvation and this treasure that we really have in that salvation that we have in Christ uh, is something that is supposed to make the Jews envy. The glory of God that is alive in us not in a temple like the Jews know it, but his strength, love and majesty in us and through us is alive there. Forgiveness of our sins through grace. Without our deeds and acts and the outpouring of the love of God, that is that is this treasure that we have in Christ. And um, that is something the Jews were supposed to be envying is about and um, if we look at the reports in the acts about the first church I really believe that the first church truly made the Jews sort of envious because Christ was alive and with them among them and they really were sort of like a good example of what it means to be really with God and Jesus and I really think that that had a good effect and might have made like the Jews envious. But if I look at Christianity today as a whole, I really doubt that the Christian church today can really make anyone envious or like the Jews envious so that they think this is what I want. 
the church today is shaped in many ways by just superficial religiousness, where the heart of the individual is there, but still too far away from God, where it's just about like superficial deeds and enactments, but the hearts are not in it. There's no closeness to God, really. But it's not really about looking at others and pointing our fingers at others, but to look at ourselves and pose ourselves the question, is my life a living testimony for the glory of God? Does Jesus have room within me in order to make people around me envious? If other people look at my life, do people think, you know what, that's what I want? Does Jesus have room in my life to accomplish that, to inspire these thoughts in other people? Is Jesus' presence in our service here, is it visible and noticeable? And it's not really about like good worship or like a good sermon. The question is more... Does Jesus have room here in us? Can his glory and his grace and his love and mercy, can it be here? Is it here? Are we filled with his Holy Spirit and his love? Do we let ourselves be guided by Jesus? Is he reigning in our hearts? Or are we living a self-led life? Are the songs that we sing just empty words or their true dedication? That's what this is about. And we already had like uh, Jews here in our service, like even back then when we were still in the harbor area, we still we, we had Jews in our service and um, did they become envious of us? I don't really know. So I don't know if this had an impact on them, if that made them envious and made them think that's what I want to. But um, I know that God in his word gave us a responsibility for his people that we have to own up to to make his people envious. And it is something we can only achieve if we really follow Jesus and really give ourselves over to Jesus so that his love and mercy can become visible in our church. And of course, we don't only have that responsibility towards uh, the Jewish people, but also towards everyone else. So let us own up to that responsibility. Let's read verses 15 to 21. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, 
You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So let's just quickly summarize that. Um, Paul is now talking um, to the question uh, to the Christians uh, that were Gentiles before. Yeah, so he's talking to the Gentiles, basically to the believers amongst the Gentiles, because they could now sort of become prideful and think that they are better and more precious than the Jews that rejected their promised Messiah. That is a mindset one could easily fall into um, to just say anything bad. To sort of pride uh, themselves in being the ones able to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And Paul wants to sort of sort this out that that is not the way it truly is. It is very likely that the oil tree is um, a symbol for the promised salvation that uh, the Jews were broken off from because of their disbelief and um, that the heathens or the Gentiles were grafted in while those that have accepted the promised salvation through Jesus. So the Jews that rejected Jesus were broken off and the Gentiles that recognized Jesus were grafted in into this olive tree. And it's really important for Paul to uh, clearly state that uh, the Christians, the Gentile Christians that are here pictured as uh, the wild branches, that they have no reason to think that they're better than the Jews because they were not saved through their own deeds, but through grace and mercy alone. Because of mercy and grace alone, they are a part of the promise that God gave to his people they are wild branches and they were grafted into this noble oil tree from whose root they now live and are nourished by. And in John 4 verse 22, it says the salvation comes from the Jews. And that doesn't only just mean like the promises God gave them, but it's also referring to Jesus himself because he himself is a Jew. So salvation comes from the Jews, from the promises that were made to them that we can be a part of and through Jesus and he is the savior salvation lies within the Jews so it is inconceivable in every manner to think that we are better than the Jews or that for the Gentiles to think that they are better than the Jews and um, Paul is warning them here the Gentiles and saying you know, the reason why the Jews were broken off from the tree is because they because of their disbelief, because of their unfaithfulness. And Paul just wants to say here, be careful, don't become arrogant. He who stands has to be careful not to fall. 
you can be broken off from that old tree for the exact same reason. When God has not saved or has not spared the natural branches, the Jews, why should he spare us the wild branches? So in verses 22 and 24, it says, Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in disbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? I think uh, every gardener would be happy about that picture about the olive tree and like the branches and stuff and maybe understand it better than us but what we can gather from this is uh, that Paul wants to show us that there is hope for the Jews when they don't remain in their uh, disbelief then God will graft them back in again remember this they are stumbling but they have not fallen in a way that they can't be recovered anymore but Paul is also saying that we, Gentile Christians, can be affected by the sternness of God just as much as the Jews. If we turn away from him and don't stay in his kindness, then we can be removed from the olive tree as well. And we kind of know this picture from John 15, where uh, it talks about the parable of the vineyard, where Jesus says that we have to stay in him. And here it says that we have to stay in his kindness. So disi discipleship means a constant remaining in Jesus. Just like the Jews, we can stumble. And that's something we know from our own life. We fall into sin, we stumble. We have doubts. But we don't completely fall beyond recovery. But we can come back to Jesus, we can repent, and Jesus will forgive us, and everything is good again. We're not losing our salvation in Christ. Jesus died for our sins. We all stumble sometimes. But he will pick us back up again. We are not beyond recovery. And we stay close to him. If we, But if we remain in our disbelief, if we remain in sin, then Paul is warning us that if we do that, we can be removed from the olive tree as well. And... Um, I was really thinking about this part for a long time and I was reading uh, a couple of Bible commentaries and a couple of them um, say that this chapter is solely about the future of the Jews and that these verses cannot be applied to the church today. And others don't even talk about these verses, they just skip them and just, have, just act like they don't exist. But 
I read it as a clear warning towards the Gentile Christians that are clearly addressed in this part. And Paul is warning us here. And as such a warning, I want to preach this. If we are in Jesus, everything is good. We have learned in Romans 8, verse 1, or Paul told us there in very certain terms that there is no damnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can have absolute certainty that we are saved. Nothing can remove us from his hand. But he's still warning us that if we turn away from him, just reject him and go a completely different way, that we can be removed. Whatever that means specifically, but yeah, I just want to pass that on to you and don't just skip these verses. And um, in the next couple of verses, that we are going to look at uh, in another sermon later on in time, we will see how God at the end of time will reach out again to his people and how they will then recognize Jesus as their Messiah and be saved. And through this, we can see God's unimaginable grace. He is doing everything so that everyone can be saved. He sees that his people have rejected him and that his people are in unfaithfulness and disbelief. But nonetheless, there will be a time where God sort of will remove this blindness that they're currently finding themselves in and that they will recognize Jesus as their Messiah and that will be a wonderful time and that will be at the end of time and that is a topic that is worth discussing in an entire sermon and uh, I'm not going to do that there are a couple of people in this church that know really a lot about this topic specifically and so we're going to have like an entire separate sermon about this uh, specific topic in the future we can see God's unimaginable grace and his sovereign plan he will awaken his people he will be true to his word and his promises will be fulfilled and that is specifically true for Israel but also for the rest of the world and it is true for you and your life God has everything in his hands and everything has its purpose and goal in his hands in this serenity and ineffableness we can rest we can have a sense of security in that and sometimes you might think you know what is God doing how does this just all fit together but in the end it will all reach a goal it will all come to fruition like God promised so let us be this living testimony of that for the Jews and for the world around us so that the world recognizes also specifically now in our day of the open door that Jesus is alive Amen. Father, we want to thank you that you are the sovereign God. You are so much bigger than we are and that we can grasp in our thoughts. And we don't understand a lot of things that we can see in this world, that we can see in your word. Oftentimes they are too big for us to understand, but what we have to understand that you have clearly revealed to us. And I want to ask you that we can be calm in your serenity that we can hold on to you and believe and have faith that you have everything in your hands 
especially also in our lives. And Father, we don't want to just lose ourselves in some religious seal that is just superficial, but but we want to be close to your heart. We want to serve you with our entire hearts, and we want that your grace and your glory becomes visible in us and our lives. And if we pray to you, we want to do that out of our hearts and not just because we think it's a duty. We want to read your word and pray, not just because we think we have to, but because it's something that we want to and because our hearts is yearning for it. And um, I'm asking you, Father, that you gift us with that yearning and I want to ask for your grace and thank you that you hold on to us and that your grace is always calling us back to you again. We praise you, Father, and praise you and worship you. And thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.